Welcome back to the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. I'm Pat Stratton and I'm your host. It's an honor to have our good friend, American hero Paul Galanti, back with us today to discuss more of his experiences from North Vietnam. In this episode, we discuss the day Paul made contact with my father in the Wallow Prison, the East German propaganda movie Pilots in Pajamas, and the photo of Paul that Life magazine purchased from the East Germans, which they later used as their October 1967 cover after deceptively altering that photo. Check out the details section of this podcast episode. I've embedded a link which includes both the original photo and the altered Life magazine cover. We'll also discuss Paul's time at the Sante prison. He was moved out of that prison along with all the other POWs just a few months before the legendary Sante raid led by Colonel Bull Simons in November of 1970. Also, at the very end of this episode, I've included one of my favorite Paul Galanti flying stories, which took place many years later, after he returned from Vietnam. you got to love this one, back in the good old days of military aviation. This one's pure Paul Galanti. Go Pablo. So let's get right back to it. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. One of the first things I want to—I'd uh, really like to talk to you about today—is that we've talked over the last couple of uh, podcast episodes a lot about what happened to you in 1966. Your shoot down, the initial uh, transfer to the Hanoi Hilton, and and the initial torture that took place. But I was surprised to hear you tell me um, in, in one of our conversations that actually 1966 was not your most difficult year that you had in Hanoi. So that was a pretty bad year. So if 66 wasn't the worst year, what, what was your worst year there? And, and what was happening that made it, made it even worse than 66? Well, they had um, purges all the time. But every court, they, they go through and uh, um, get the guards on the job training to bring them up. We called it sending them back to hate school, and they'd go away, and then they'd get rough, rough for a while. But personally, for me, the roughest time was early '69, and they'd started packages, and um, we were at this big camp, and we weren't supposed to. I was in uh, Little Vegas. We weren't supposed to know uh, about these packages when somebody else was getting one. I was in solitary at the time, and they called me out to get this thing, and then nobody else got one for about a week. So I figured. They're trying to set this up and make me look like a patsy. And so we, at the time, we went out to the bathhouse to uh, shower, to the shower. That would way to splash water on us, ourselves. And um, uh, and so anyway, so I took, Phyllis uh, had some of those little four lifesaver rolls, the stuff they used to give out on airplanes. <laughs> and she had a bunch of those in the package. And so I took a couple of those out and, and uh, out to the shower and, jumped up and saw some uh, other Americans on the other side and flipped the, uh, uh, the some of the candy over to them and got caught. 
And so I started 10 miserable days. That was actually worse than initial interrogation because it was in January and it was bitter cold. And I spent uh, 10 days in my underwear uh, sitting on a, uh, an ice cold stool in a concrete cell. And, uh, and then they, the guards would come around there watching me all the time. And I counted every single chime of a Westminster chimes type thing across the street at some old church or something. And uh, every single one for 10 days. That's every 15 minutes. I counted them all the way around. Wow. So they punished you because you shared some of your candy that you got in a care package with another POW. Uh, the, the actual charge was having a bad attitude. Wow. And, uh, and, and, and disobeying the rules of the camp. And uh, and it was ended up, it was really, really gross. I ended up having, um, I mean, they're real. These hallucinations were so real. Uh, but actually, uh, my little broom, uh, little whisk broom they had down in the corner, the room to keep it you know, supposedly clean, um, was actually a CIA agent in disguise. And, and, uh, and these, these uh, uh, hallucinations were so amazing that I could remember them for several years afterward, just like they really happened. It was like they really, um, something happened anyway. After about ten days of this, uh, I mean, I was just going crazy, and uh, and so I started praying and praying and praying and praying and praying and praying, and, uh, and all of a sudden there's a flash, and uh, the image of Jesus came wafting through the end of the room with me, and I said, "You're going to be okay." And within a few minutes, the, the guard camp, the camp commander came in, and said they must need the interrogation room or something else. He says. You must demonstrate good attitude. Get out of here. And so the guard took me away. So I went back to a cell right next to Jerry Coffey. They had communication again for the first time in 10 days. That was the worst time I had because I was just, I mean, it was, it was a full 10 days of being kept awake, forced awake. It took me about six months to recover. I was in the Stardust Wing and uh, um, back in solitary. And then, uh, uh, they throw me in through this room, and the jury coffee came up, and we we communicated for a little bit, and everything was hunky dory, and I, I, I crashed and uh, woke up, you know, sometime later. I'm not sure. It felt like I slept for about ten hours, ten or twelve hours. Wow. Um. So that that was a rough time for you, and that. Uh, what about uh, collectively the worst year for torture? Um, so in 1966, when you first got there, they obviously tortured you a lot. Um, was that the worst torture that you received or, and the most consistent or did that come later? It was mostly because I didn't know yet that the marching orders were tolerate torture only at the point of permanent disability. So I was given everything. And, 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 uh, after, after that first time. I didn't feel my hands again for six months. It was just, uh, uh, you know, the nerve, the circulation, nerve off, damage. Yeah. Yep. And I still had, had peripheral neuropathy for a long time. Um, uh, including after, uh, after we got home, but it was, it was a, a bad scene. I figured that the only way to get out of it then 
was just a fight and fight and fight and fight and fight. And uh, finally, you had to give in at some point. That's, yeah. That's why I went. Um, anyway, that was the worst time. The first one, the first interrogation in Hanoi okay. went on for about three days. And uh, uh, but the rest of them were, I mean, I, I didn't, I just uh, started trying to get lies in order. Or it's uh, like the Life magazine thing. I just extend my middle fingers and uh, just do something to embarrass them or to screw it up or, or act like I didn't understand what they're talking about. It just played down. Right. And, and I think as a result of that, I never appeared. My voice never came on uh, anything that I'm aware of that was broadcast. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, I, I certainly do want to talk to you today about the Life magazine picture that appeared um, in 1967. Uh, first thing I want to talk to you about today, though, th this is actually something I've been wanting to talk to you about in detail for a long time. So my dad was shot down in on uh, January 5th, 1967, and he was brought to Hanoi and he was tortured significantly, and he had a really bad time uh, for for the first week, uh, and he was in really bad shape. And you were the first American to make contact with him, and he was in a state that only someone like you would understand, only another POW would understand his mental state, his physical state, where he was, after being there for about a week, uh, had been abused really bad. And you, you took significant risk, um, to your own well-being, and, and you, you made contact with my dad, which we're eternally grateful to you for. My dad talks about that all the time. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Tell me about the circumstances how did you figure out uh, he was next to you in the cell next to you? Uh, who were you with in your cell? And and how did you, he didn't know the tap code yet. So how, how did you make contact with him and, and how did you communicate with him? Well, I, I had been in the cell he was in before. So I knew on the wall was scratched that little uh, tic-tac-toe board with a, a tap code in it. And, uh, and so I, I just referred him to that. And, and I was with John Heilig then. And we could act like we were talking to each other. And he could hear it through his window. And so we were just getting him to cough in response. He said, a uh, new PW in self three. Uh, uh, you copy? He said, yeah, roger that. And, 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 uh, and so I said, okay, don't talk. Just cough. One for yes, two for no, three for I don't know. And so we tried to get it figured out by elimination. He was Navy, um, an A4 driver from Lemoore. And um, uh, and I guess we got a few, oh, oh, Lieutenant Commander, talked him up to um, uh, being a senior officer. And your dad has a pretty funny story about that from his vantage point, because he could hear us talking to each other. And he heard things like, he says, oh, yeah, another A4 driver. And... Um, and, uh, and there's a mumbling over there. And uh, then I asked him a question. What was the score of the Army-Navy game? And this is January. The Army-Navy game had been in December, I think. Or I think it was a little earlier than November. And uh, and uh, he said he didn't know. Cough, cough, cough. Yeah. And uh, 
and he's like, I, I said, I, I, I just figured out he was an A4 driver, a senior officer, and then he didn't know the score of the Army Navy game. So I figure a stupid one at that. Yeah. That's what your dad tells. I can't <laughs> believe we actually said that. But then they th- he thumped on the wall uh, or the guard gate or something. And it just stopped him. That was the last conversation I had. I never bought. I couldn't get his name. I just was going to have him wait till it was quiet enough that he could whisper it so he could catch it that way. And he's just just learned how to tap. And uh, so we never got his name. And then uh, I saw him later in the plantation. But they, he was in solitary in another part of the camp. We never got close enough. And um, when they, we opened the, uh, the plantation up, that was we were the first ones over there, I think. And uh, I know Hegdahl was in there, and I never saw I saw your, your dad one time um, in the camp. But they were keeping everybody separated. Yeah. We, we had a place. We could, from, from the room I was in, we could see out and see. Uh, I had to be careful, but you could see... Uh, uh, at least shadows through the whole camp, see people moving around. So how long did that first uh, interaction last when, when you were talking and asking questions and, and trying to teach them the tap code? How, how long did that go on? Uh, probably half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour or something. I don't know. Time, time was irrelevant when we started going because something was actually happening. Right, and, uh, and we had to be we had to be careful. We had to stop every few seconds to make certain there's there's uh, uh, you hear the guards creaking around in the room, and their rifle slings would always squeak, and so they'd try and be real quiet, but we could hear them squeaking whenever they were moving around, and so uh, we had to be real careful because we could look under the door if we were making noise, they they assumed we were talking to each other, but we didn't want to have him get caught because that that's uh. At the time, it was, I think, 10, 10 days in, in, uh, in leg irons uh, for, for getting caught trying to communicate. Right. Well, so I, I wanted to talk about this, too. So I found out something really cool about this. So at the end of that interaction, um, my dad always thought for all these years, up until the last month or so, he thought that at the end of that communication, at the end of that um, time when you communicated with him, he thought you got caught and he thought you got drug out of your cell and tortured because of that. And did, did you get caught by the Vietnamese and were you tortured for that? Not then, or if I did, it was irrelevant. The guy just popped the door open. We we knew they were out there. And uh, uh, I don't remember if, we tapped on the wall, thumped on the wall first, or your dad did. But, um, um, but anyway, that, that's an alert signal, so we suddenly weren't in a communicating mode. And the only thing they have is when they opened a the little window, and uh, they came and started yelling because they heard us talking. So, but anyway, no, it was not torture. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's great. And, and when I found that out and I told my dad, he felt really <clears throat> good about that because he— it, that it act, that's something it, it's it's weird the when you talk to different POWs about their experiences and the things that have really stuck with them all these years that was one of the things that really stuck with him it bothered him that and he really thought that you had been tortured for that and it made him feel bad so he, he was happy to learn that you were not uh, caught and, and tortured that time so I, I think that was pretty cool he wasn't caught either 
um, which was also really neat. So that, that, that was pretty cool. Um, something else I wanted to talk about, uh, that is very, uh, very relevant to this period of time in 1967. And, uh, my dad was part of this. Um, and, and I know you were as well in June of 1967, the East Germans came over to Vietnam to film a propaganda video called Pilots in Pajamas. And the, the movie was put together with footage from all over Vietnam, but I think most of the film footage was taken in the plantation. Um, if you could speak to that and tell me a little bit about that, I, I'd like to know more about that. But I know a, I, a lot of what I've seen was from the plantation. And this is where, in June of 67, a photo was taken with you. There was a sign in the background that said, Clean and Neat. And this was the picture that eventually got published in Life magazine in October. So can you tell me a little bit about what was going on during that period of time and what were they trying to accomplish? Well, they wanted me to... uh, uh interviewed by some of these East Germans. And I said, oh, that's great. I speak German. I'm going to tell them all about the torture and bad treatment. <laughs> and uh, the, anyway, the interrogator went away and came back a few minutes later and said, I don't think they will talk to you. If they don't talk to you, you don't talk to them. And so I said, all right. So then, then all of a sudden, they, they, um, my, there, there are actually three of us in that room, but it looks like I'm in solitary in that picture. Uh, my my uh, bed, which was two sawhorses and three boards. Um, I was right in the middle of the room, so they had me sitting on the end of it. And, and uh, as they were coming in, I said, I don't look bad. We had our room slogan right above my head, and we had to choose. We could have either good order and discipline or clean and neat. <laughs> we figured clean and neat sounds totalitarian, so they they had a, they made up a sign for that and, and put it up there and each of us got our hands all dirty and muddy and put handprints all over the sign and thought that was if anybody looked at it closely, they'd see a clean and neat sign with uh, muddy handprints all over it. And then, uh, and I didn't want anybody to see that picture and to even remotely think I was doing it voluntarily. They were trying to get us to smile and be happy. And so I just stared into the camera just, uh, as hard as I could. Um, and he gently had my hands uh, between my legs and, and uh, gently eased my middle fingers down. And uh, that was in all of the real pictures. And the one they used in Life magazine, somebody had airbrushed them out. And it, this is back before Photoshop. They didn't do a very good job. It looked like they chopped my fingers off. It just it goes down to the end of my, I uh, see hands coming out of my pajamas. And it just stops it where my fingers should be. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen, uh, obviously I've seen the life magazine photo, the cover, that picture was posted. It it was the cover of life magazine in October of 1967. I've also seen the original photos that uh, show you uh, flipping them the bird uh, between your legs there to, to clearly indicate that you were not doing this willingly. You were under duress um, and, and so I, I thought you did an awesome job of doing that. And 
and, and it really just goes to show you, not only can you not believe everything you read in the press, you can't even believe it when you see it with your own eyes because they can doctor it. Um, and it was just so blatantly doctored by Life magazine and posted. They had the original pictures that I think they purchased for a lot of money, by the way. I think Life paid the East Germans a ton of money for that picture. And then Life took the picture and, and like you said, airbrushed it to change the picture. Uh, picture in such a significant way it's just uh how, how did the, you obviously didn't know um how did that make you feel years later when you came well, back <clears throat> well some of the later shoot downs you know right after this uh, the bombing pause started in 68 and uh and very few pow's were coming in uh, and the, the ones that were had been kept somewhere else and then brought into hanoi for whatever reason but they, they, there were virtually no new input. We missed all of the moonshot and all that other stuff starting about that time in 68 is when the peace talk started. And uh, so I didn't know about it. When it, 1971, when the bombing started up again, Al, um, my good friend, he'd been in my squadron, actually with, with one of the uh, um, uh, guys who had been on my flight when I was shot down. And he came in and said that that, that picture had been on the cover of Life magazine, and that the only intelligence shops uh, in the Air Force and Navy uh, around the country had the original one with my fingers stuck out, and they were uh, um, talking about you know resistance. It's it's passive resistance. I'm sure you saw this in the Marines also, when somebody wants to get even with you, but he didn't want to go to jail, so he he just sort of acts like he's not cooperating, but he really is, and. Right, and, uh, it's a passive resistance, and um, so anyway, that was it. I, did, I saw these guys come in uh, as they were leaving. Uh, uh, the guy who was holding the was a light bar that had a bunch of floodlights on it, and um, as he was leaving, I said, "Peter Zane Scheisskopf," which is sort of a nasty German expression. And he looked sort of startled, and. and uh, and so he, he looked at me. I said goodbye, and, uh, and shook his hand. And they walked out. So I'm, I'm sure he, he knew exactly what I said. Right. Yeah. They. Uh, I mean that that Life magazine picture uh, with the airbrush photo on the front. It also made no mention inside the magazine in the article that it had been airbrushed. So it, I, I just felt that was. That was just really bad and, and changed the entire uh, the entire intent of what was going on there. Um, you know, the 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 propaganda movie itself. It, it, it's actually there's hours of footage out there available on and the I've internet. Watched, I've watched I've watched them all. I guess thirteen hours. Yeah, there, there's black and white movies, very very bad quality. Yep, and. Um, um, they in those propaganda movies that were put together by the East Germans, uh, they claim that most American POWs maintain their normal weight. Um, they claim that they were treated very well. They had very lenient experiences over there and, and whatnot. So what, what was your experience there specifically to your weight? 
Were you able to maintain your original weight uh, when you got uh, after a, a year or two there, or had you lost significant weight over there? I, I was about uh, 165 uh, when I was flying. Um, but that's, uh, yeah, it's 130 degree temperatures inside the good old USS Han on air conditioned USS Hancock and, and just sweating it all out. And, and those flights would come back just wrung out. And, um, but I weighed about 165. And then during the interrogations, my initial interrogations in June of 67, uh, one of them, there's a scale in the room. They, they didn't use it on me, but I saw it there. And when the, the guards went away for a little bit, I went running over and got on it. And I weighed 50 kilograms, which is 110 pounds. And uh, that, that was 55 pounds in just a couple months. Wow. And, 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 uh, I, I mean, I ate everything they they, they threw at me. Um, I even ate the, the bugs one time when we were going up to these big beetles. Um, which tastes kind of like, like, a uh, popcorn. <laughs> uh, um, wow. So you certainly lost I, a lot of weight. Well, I, it didn't seem like that at the time. I didn't feel any different. Of course, there are no mirrors anyway, so I couldn't look at my legs. I know that the, uh, the knee joint was the largest, largest part of my leg. So I'd lost a lot of weight that way, but I don't remember feeling especially weak. Um, uh, I wasn't exercising then because there wasn't enough. Uh, food to, to support that. Yeah. So I just yeah, lie around all day. Well, and, you, uh, you mentioned exercise. I was, I was in, you, 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 you know, you mentioned exercise. So that was another thing they claimed in the propaganda movie. They have pictures of an American POW outside exercising, doing calisthenics and whatnot outside. And the POW looked to be reasonably healthy. Did, did they allow you to go outside and exercise daily? No, no, not daily. We got out, we got out one, uh, about an hour a week to go out to the, the uh, um, little bathhouse they had. It had about eight, eight cells in it and just had a sink. But we were out there during the daytime. There's no water pressure. So we ended up, um, if there's any water at all, uh, we just used it to scrub down with. Yeah. Uh, there, there's uh, uh and then the other times, I think this was for propaganda also, they had this, all this powdered coal from the uh, coal mine, or the, the, the uh, thermal power plant. And um, and you put water in that, you mix it up and make like a, um, a snowball, except it's made out of coal. They call them coal balls. And uh, that's what they used to cook with. They use those coal balls um, in the kitchen to cook with. Right. Um so you, you mentioned that the food and that you ate everything they gave you. Um, can, can you get, tell, tell me a little bit about the food and specifically what did they give you um, and how many times a day did they feed you? Uh, it, it, that varied. We had, when I first got there, it was twice a day, one about five o'clock in the morning, right after uh, they made us get up and then uh, at night, so it was like all day long um, with nothing. It was, it was pumpkin soup and rice twice a day and, uh, and for about half a year. And then in the wintertime, it switched to a, uh, a green vegetable of some kind, like kale, and they just throw it. It was uh, 
expenditure chaos what it looked like we call them sewer greens it, it had uh it had, it didn't, if it had any taste at all it wasn't bad but it, it was not good but that, and then the rice was um they, they thought it was number 10 because it still had the husks on it but that was the good part that's the reason i think we came out so well is that that that, that rice was number 10 as far as they were concerned but uh, we thought it was pretty good that we got that because that's where all the vitamins are in rice. The white part of rice has virtually nothing in it except a little starch. Yeah. And when you say number 10, what what do you mean by that? <laughs> Orient. That's, that's, I'm sorry. I, uh, at the Asia, in, in Asia, number one is good. Like uh, Ichiban in Japan. I remember a little kid over there. Daiichi is number one. Ichiban means number one son. And uh, which I was my family, and so uh, and that's where we had uh, we had three, two two maids and a houseboy over there. They're sis, brothers, sisters, and a brother, uh, and he was our gardener. He used to cut the grass with hand clippers, and, and uh, for the, in our base housing, and that was uh, Uncle Sam. Just uh, they lived with us in the same house. And uh, uh, the older one would, would cook sometimes. We just had their own rice. But that was mostly because there weren't any jobs for the Japanese over there. And so that was a way of, uh, they, they didn't, I don't know how much they got paid, but it wasn't very much. Right. And they lived with us and we, we, they got food from us and they always wanted rice and they a bunch of stuff like that. They cook on their own. And so anyway, that was, that was in Japan, but Ichi had number Ichi Sanji Ichi is number one. Okay, and, uh, and so number ten was the what they considered very poor quality. Correct. Yes, yeah. it was. Okay. Um, did have you have you had? Here's an interesting question for you. You had a lot of pumpkin soup when you're over in Vietnam, and it probably wasn't very good. Uh, it was probably was it kind of a watery consistency. It was. Uh, couple of pieces of pumpkin meat thrown in some boiling water. That's, that was the recipe. And, um, and it, just as a joke, uh, for a couple of years, I was, when I was the head of the non uh, we had the, the reunion. Uh, one was in Williamsburg and one was down at Virginia beach. And, uh, both times the, uh, the, the aperitif mention was la soupe de potiron, or pumpkin soup. <laughs> Except this was a, this is a whole different kind of pumpkin soup that we had before. The kind they do in Williamsburg. Yeah, we um, we when we still have uh, a Freedom Day celebration every year uh, for my dad. Uh, March fourth is, is the day we celebrate Freedom Day, the day he was released. And many years ago, we used to have pumpkin soup every year for that. <laughs> now we we made it a little bit better than what you guys had, but. I still have not been able to make pumpkin soup taste too good. I, I, I'm, I guess I'm not a very good chef, but I, I, I haven't been back. But you say that every time down at Williamsburg at the Colonial Williamsburg, that's that's one of the delicacies. It's really, these are known for is pumpkin soup. I got to take take some uh, take some lessons from those guys so I can make it a little better next time for my dad. <laughs> I guess. Um, well. You know, I really um, would also like to know about um, you moved around a lot to a lot of different cells. So uh, you had contact with my dad 
in Wallow Prison, the Hanoi Hilton, and you were moved around, and I know you also spent time in the plantation. Um, did you ever have any face-to-face contact with my dad um, when you you were both at the plantation? Uh, no, I saw him. He was in, in a, the building about 100 yards from our uh, uh, camp. I saw him going back and forth into the camp. Uh, he was he was kind of distinguished looking. That big nose from around the corner, you can see him coming, right? Oh, yeah, no, no, just he looked like, uh, and I, I told him this, I, I uh, figured out, I, I think he figured this out also. The reason he got such bad treatment, I mean, he's got the worst scars on his arms or anybody I, I saw. And I had those, but they all went away, and I felt bad because Dick had um, these, uh, uh, I mean, it looks like they look like burn scars. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but anyway, but he looked like their version of G.I. Joe. You know, for us, G.I. Joe's a good guy. But in Vietnam, G.I. Joe wasn't a good guy. And they had these, the kids had these little comic books. And G.I. Joe had a, um, uh, it didn't look quite like an anteater, but, you know, he had, um, and, and they think big eyes and wide apart is really beautiful. And he didn't have that. He had these big furry eyebrows. And, and <laughs> um, I, no, Jeff McNally actually uh, was a, a two-time Pulitzer Prize winning editorial cartoonist here. Yep. He loved your dad. He said, in fact, when he came to, uh, came to Annapolis to visit, he went by and drew this little sketch with just a couple of pen strokes. It was a perfect caricature um, of your dad, and it had up and down like this for for his um, hair, and then a big nose sticking out of it, <laughs> and two eyes like this, and and, uh, um, and your dad was the chief of staff then, and he had that made into a rubber stamp instead of initialing stuff. Oh, that's after funny. he'd read it, he'd, he'd stamp it with it with the big the big rubber stamp. That's funny. Um... While we're talking about the plantation, one other thing I wanted to ask you. So back to the clean and neat photo that ended up on Life magazine. Was that photo taken at the plantation prison? Is that where that was? Yes. That, was that was in the big house that was right next to the okay. there were two big houses in there. And we were in one of them. It was just that one big room. Okay. And, you know, it looks like horrible conditions, but that room was 25 by 30. There were just three of us in there. Okay. In the, in light, in the Life magazine. There's another picture of Dave Gray, but he was not a known POW, so they made him turn his face to the camera. He went back, and he, it was, his was a little more overt than I was because he just turned his, his back to the camera like he was instructed and put his hand up and just one, one huge extended middle. He's a big guy anyway. Huh. His huge extended middle finger. and middle, Mine was sort of, I was already had a story already made up of uh, right. I used to play baseball, and that was the signal for a double fastball or something. <laughs> and, uh... um, so one other, uh, another guy that my dad came in contact a lot and actually lived with while he was at the plantation for a, uh, quite a period of time is a guy by the name of Doug Hegdahl. Um, when you were at the plantation, did you ever come across Doug Hegdahl, and did you spend time with him? I, I did, the three of us. That were in the big house were the first ones there, and we were cleaning everything up. They had, it was an old French film studio, and they had all these big film cans. That, you know, are, are about 
18 inches across. And, uh, and, and so they were cleaning all that stuff up and they, they just got it out of public view. So we just throw it in the back corner of the room somewhere. And, um, and then we were, we were chopping down bushes and things just trying to try and make the, uh, it was it had been apparently an old French film studio. And um, there was a big house that was sort of like, the, uh, that's where the camp commander was. That's where the guards would eat. We could see them over there eating in their little room. And then we were in the one right next to it. It was a, was a big room. Um, and But it was up high. And they didn't have, uh, they had slats coming down. So if you got up on your tiptoes, you could look down through the slats and see people walking back and forth. And um, there's, uh, my favorite story doing that is we were looking one time at these Guys are walking along, the ear clunk, 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 and the guard's up there with his clanking rifle. And here comes an American and another American. And this third American comes by there. I said, I'm Pawkawani, who are you? <laughs> and he kind of startled and kept walking. And then um, he came back, he straggled way behind the, the, the other two guys and the guard. He straggled way behind him, looked at him and said, I'm Charlie Plum. Thanks for not washing me out, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie had been one of my plebes, 64th at the Naval Academy. He'd been one of my plebes during the plebe summer. That I was on the detail. Oh, wow. And, uh, and, um, and so anyway, he's a good guy. Good guy then. Plus, he wanted to fly, so he had special treatment. And then later, uh, was we graduated, we were pretty close to 64. Uh, and um, uh, anyway, later, he comes out of Pensacola. He shows up as a flight instructor, plowed back. And I saw his, his name up on the board and looked at him. That's him. So I picked him up for a, a, a flight. To, um, and he had great grades and ended up getting fighters. I had great grades and ended up getting plowed back to VT-1, the primary training squadron. Yeah, wow. That's a neat Charlie, story. Charlie and I have really gotten to be good friends. Of course, he's one of the professional speakers. You know, he's the, Sure. Uh, that, that, he got out of the Navy. We stayed in the reserves. He made captain. Stayed in the reserves. But he was going around for you know, $15,000, $20,000 to talk, uh, giving these things all over the country. And um, Does he still do that, or is he retired? I, I think he does it, but not, it doesn't make a lighting out of it. He just does it. Yeah. It's somebody, somebody will pay his, uh, give him a hotel room and uh, pay his transportation. And depends who it is, too. Yeah. No, nobody knows, nobody's interested anymore. It's, this is such ancient history. Well, I that's why I do it. this podcast because I, I, I'm very interested in it and I'm actually really glad I've been doing this. I've learned, um, so much about what you guys went through and about what actually happened. Uh, it, when in the last year I've started talking to my dad about this in so much greater detail and started the podcast and talking to you, I'm learning a lot and I just want to make sure that this is documented, um, really well in your words and in the other POW words. So everybody knows, uh, what you guys went through, uh, during that period of time, because, uh, you guys were treated really bad but there were a lot of heroic actions that, that took place over there. And, you know, um, speaking of, hero, you know, of heroic actions, the, uh, my dad speaks a lot about a, a lot of really heroic things that were done over there. And he's got so much respect for so many different 
POWs that he spent time there with. Doug Hegdahl is one of those guys that he holds in the, in the highest esteem. Doug postured in his own way there. He, he, he made the, the North Vietnamese communist believe that he was really stupid. They didn't think he could write or read, and which is kind of funny because Doug was one of the smartest guys. I mean, the guy has a, a photographic memory, and um, he, they, he, he, he made him believe he was really stupid, and they let him out in the camp compound and unsupervised sometimes, and he would go and dump dirt and sand in uh, trucks and disable the trucks and my dad would be sitting in his cell looking through a little crack and he would see him doing this and he would just be rooting dug on from from afar he thought that was outstanding well i don't know if it's embellished um or not but of course dirt and mud that will clog clog stuff but um, we also had for some reason i think the cubans Vietnam grows a lot of sugar. They used to. They, they couldn't do it during the war. So the Cubans were sending them lots of sugar. And uh, and uh, the story that I heard, and I can't remember if it's something I made it myself because it just sounds too cool not to be, was um, the camp commander. They had these old Russian jeeps. And, the guy, and being a POW officer was not real high on the list of priorities in the North Vietnamese Army. And, um, and so... Anyway, the camp commander had a jeep, a Russian jeep, but the, the glass was so wavy, you couldn't, it, was, it was awful. It was just, you know, it was rusty and falling apart. And uh, uh, he, he said, this is the story I got. I dug, of course, a good old farm boy from South Dakota, but he went up there and said, why don't you get rid of that piece of Russian crap and get a, get a Ford? That's a bitching truck. <laughs> so you know how to, you know how to fix truck no, every all Americans know how to do that. You can fix. You can fix them. Sure. And he looked. At, he went smelled the gas. This this is the story. This there is a, for if I were making a movie, this is the way it would be, whether it was correct or not. Uh, he smelled the gas. He says, "Your gasoline is too sour. You must put some sugar in it." <laughs> so, so he went out and got some sugar and put sugar in the gas tank. And, um, and of course, that goes right through the filter and, and dissolves. It goes right through the filter and gets in the cylinders and just <laughs> anyway when he went, he went out of there the, the engine was backfiring and he got out uh, somewhere the jeep we never saw that jeep again so the camp, camp the next time we saw a camp commander he was on a bicycle that's funny that that's a great story so speaking of, of the camp commander so I I know there were a lot of different camp commanders at all of the different camps that you went to and you spent time at. But there, there was a specific guy by the name of Major Bai um, that my dad has talked about a lot. Um, did you have much interaction ever with Major Bai? I think. I only saw him one time. And I usually had the rabbit for an interrogator. And one other guy called Blockhead because he had a perfectly square head. I just look at it. I just see right. like a block, and uh, but uh, but the uh, camp commander, the, the nasty one, they called the bug. It's just a vicious, sadistic, whatever. So you, you must meet the commander of all the camps. And so this guy came in. And he was speaking French, and uh, 
and, and I spoke French a lot better to him than I did to the, the French woman that took me to go see. But he was uh, uh, very, very distinguished. His, his uniform was about 10 cuts above everybody else's. I mean, it looked like it was tailored. And Right. What camp uh, was he? What camp, the bug, when you ran into him, what camp was that in? That was in Heartbreak. Okay. I mean, he had, he had these eyes that... Uh, it's obviously some kind of disease, but the eyes pointed out like like this, or one of them was like Jack Elam was a old movie star that always played a bad guy in the cowboy movies, and um, he. Um, but anyway, he, but he was he was really nasty. He's the one that snapped his fingers to get the torture. He snapped his finger like that. And that means uh, the torture sergeant and, and heartbreak would come over and. He'd, he'd, Master of tying ropes, right? The heartbeat, and, and um, but anyway, that's where I, the bug was. But that's also where I met. Um, the, the only time I, I was interviewed by him, um, uh, it, it was over there. And I think that was just before we went to out uh, um, to out to uh, plantation, and then I, I think they were looking for a big propaganda coup then. Okay. Um. You know, another thing I wanted to ask you about, so other than the East Germans, dur during all your almost seven years there in Vietnam, other than the East Germans, did you see many other foreign visitors come over there and get involved? Like, I've read a lot about the what they call the Cuban program, that where Cubans came in, and I think it was either 67 or 68, and, yeah. and did you have any exposure to any Cubans that came? No, I didn't. But Al Carpenter did. And Al, Al and I were great friends from flight training on. And we're still friends today. He lives just uh, 50 miles from here. And uh, but he was one of those guys. And uh, vicious. And the, the trouble was the Vietnamese knew they didn't speak English very well. They learned it all in textbooks. None of them ever lived in the U.S., the communists. And... Uh, and their English was awful. So, but these Cubans, uh, I, I wasn't part of this. There were three of them, I think. And the head guy was a Cuban intelligence officer who spoke perfect English, no accent, nothing. And, and I mean, it's, it's like he was a, uh, um, you, you couldn't pull a wool over his eyes. The other one, you just played dumb a lot of cases. And there's a, there is sort of an effect that if your guy doesn't speak the same language as you do, he, therefore he must be stupid. And I'm sure that, that rolled over to us. And the only, they couldn't understand that because number one people in their countries go be, be fighter pilots. They couldn't understand how they got so many of these fighter pilots because they know where they, those guys stand uh, in their their own country. Yeah. What what were the what were the goals of the Cubans coming there? So three or four Cuban agents came over and did and, and they were interrogating some of our POWs. Were they were they also torturing? Like, was Al Carpenter oh, yeah. tortured by the Cubans? I think so. I don't remember if he was specifically. But I know that one I heard about is they have two guys living in a room. They'd go out to interrogations at the same time. And one guy would come back first. They'd, they'd say, oh, we have some mail from your home. And get off six or seven letters from his, his wife, or whatever, pictures of the baby and stuff. And uh, he says, now nah, go back and enjoy your letters. And he did that. Well, the other guy they took out and beat the living daylights out of him. 
with, with the kind of stuff he they couldn't get out of it. No matter what he said, it was wrong. And just beat him to a, within an inch of his life. And then bring him back together. And then gets the, 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 I'm sure the supposition was this guy just got everything beat out. He said, wonder how come he got letters and I got beat up? And, and, and I'm sure that's what they were trying to show the Vietnamese how to do. Yeah, and, so uh, they're trying to create division between the POWs. Yep. Yeah, okay. And they killed Ed, they killed Ed Atterbury in, in one of these interrogations. They, and they just died. They stuck him in solitary in a room like that. And he was screaming all night long and, and they just, just probably died. Wow. Again, I wasn't there, but they're witnesses to that. Uh, uh, but it was, a, it was an awful place. I think there were 10 or 12 Americans in that uh, this setup, and, um, and I never saw the Cubans. Wow, wow. Um, what about, so uh, in, in a lot of conversations I've had uh, with various POWs, I, I've heard a lot about Hanoi Hannah, and what did she come on daily over a loudspeaker in, in some of the camps that you were in? Uh, or All of them. All of them? All of them. It would start at you know, five o'clock in the morning. There's a broadcast that she made to the GIs in the South to tell them to turn it, you know, hang it up and and you know, shoot your officers and that sort of stuff. It was really kind of stupid, but she had a, a clipped British accent, and, uh, and and so she sounded very officious. But I remember they didn't understand English, American English very well, and so I, I remember one of the first uh, Hanoi Hannas I heard was right after I got there. After it took me 12 days to get from where I was shot down to get to Hanoi, and I was in that cell that morning, and and the, the program would go along. There's they had a segment called "Those Those Those Who Died But Not for Their Country," and and, and they started reading names of the casualty list from the Stars and Stripes. And the first name of the first the first one I heard was John Shaw Sabine, the IV. What's the fourth? And um, but. My roommate in high school was John uh, Shaw Sabine the Fourth um, at Valley Forge Military Academy. And plus, our dads were both stationed in Turkey at the same time. Oh wow! So I used to pal around with him in the, uh, during the summer. And he went. He went on into. You know, our goals then was going to go to West Point. We both went to Munich, Germany, for a year as a prep school, and then um, at the University of Maryland Extension, and. Uh, and I got into the Naval Academy, and John didn't get in, so in fact, he got thrown out of that school for punching somebody. And uh, he went to uh, Middle Tennessee State. His father's alma mater and uh, was an Army officer. And he was a helicopter pilot. I, I did see him when he was in flight training at Fort Rucker. And uh, I was down in Meridian, Mississippi. And so we uh, went up one time and spent a whole weekend with him. And... Uh, um, and it's just like the good old days. So hearing his name just after arriving in Hanoi after 12 days of being in the boondocks was uh, pretty rough to take. But he had actually died. Um, he was a helicopter pilot, but he was died. Uh, um, the, the Viet Cong were overrunning a camp he was in. And he got a bunch of Army aviator types. And they got their rifles and stuff and went out to go hunting them. And, and then the whole, the whole detachment got robbed got wiped out and, and they they hannah hannah listed his name on one of her broadcasts then yeah it happened to be the first one this wow is, they had a little column in the stars and stripes 
with all the casualties casually every year. Okay. Every wow. day, I mean, it'd be every day or every week, whenever they release it. Um, well, so here's another thing I, I want to talk. We've talked a lot about this, and but I, I've never really talked to you in great detail about all the different... They moved you around during your seven years in Vietnam. They moved you around to a lot of different POW camps, and I think the number is 10. Um, can, can you, can you just tell me, uh, what all those camps are and approximately how long were you at each one of the camps? I can tell you exactly. I'm going to run right down the list now. Uh, I got shot down the 17th of June, 66, took 12 days to get, uh, uh, heartbreak Hanoi, the Hanoi Hilton heartbreak hotel was the first camp. I got there on the 29th of June which is the same day we bombed Hanoi for the first time, which is not a good time to arrive. And, and the, the, the big PA system with speakers on every block in that city, they were going crazy. They were screaming and yelling, and I couldn't understand what they were saying, but whoever was yelling wasn't happy. And then that on March 6th, uh, one week after I'd been in Hanoi, um, they came in and took the, these blue pajamas that they'd given me, took those away and gave me a set of khaki ones. They're all blood-stained and they rips in them and everything. And, and that was, turns out to be the uniform we wore in the parade. And um, oh man, Robbie Reisner had come back uh, for, I think, an interrogation to get ready for this thing. They're trying to use him for prop, propaganda. So I rode, the, the, I didn't know where we were going, but I got stuck in the back of a Jeep and, and uh, next to Robbie Reiser. And I knew his name because I'd read that Life magazine uh, uh, or Newsweek magazine that he was in as representing American fighting man in the war as a squad, a squad commander. And uh, so anyway, he gave me all the lore going back to um, uh, on the way over to the soccer stadium. Um Anyway, he disconnected me after we got over there and then hooked me up to another guy. I looked, it was Len Eastman, who was off the Hancock, my ship. So he'd been shot down a couple of days after I was looking for me. And then uh, I went from there to the zoo for a very short while, for about a month, and brought me back to Heartbreak again to get prepped for a, uh, a news conference uh, with Madeleine Riffaut, who's a French communist news, newswoman. And... Uh, and she interviewed me, and, and I, I couldn't speak French very well. All of a sudden, I couldn't remember anything. And uh, it was part of a book she wrote. Um, and Phyllis, Phyllis actually was a French major. She went over to Paris to visit this woman after the book came out. And I went there. I went in heartbreak very long that time. And went over to uh, Little Vegas in a room four feet by six feet. And uh, double bunk in it, and uh, next to uh, old time BOWs for first time ever. And it was right next to uh, Larry Gorio was in that camp, and some of the other guys. And that wasn't very long because they, uh, they just uh, have uh, had a lousy attitude. The we went to the, uh, uh, Little Vegas, March of '67, June of '67. That's where they staged 
the Life magazine shoot. They didn't they didn't like the attitude during the shoot. So that's when we went from there to um, the power plant, the Hanoi power plant. And we're living in this coal dust, about an inch of coal dust on the floor of this thing, soaking wet with sweat. And, um, and the bunks were just bamboo strips on the uh, on the on the deck, and um, we we're in there for this you know, power plant. June is June of '67, July of '67. Right after they filmed June of '67 is when they filmed the, uh, um, the the took the pictures that were in Life magazine, and then so uh, it was the power plant. Um, I know it was a power plant was just for a month and um, they were taking us out and, um, every once in a while they have a sweep the street with a little whisk room and, uh, and every time we do that they take us out and be out there for a few minutes and this big limousine to come by with some Europeans in it obviously not Vietnamese these big Russian resist limousines that's to get the word out that they had prisoners at the uh power plant i'm sure to keep it from being bombed um so you were a human shield basically is what you were there yep um well that's where you but we weren't the only ones they also had about 100 kids in these little houses around the power plant we were in one of those little houses um it was inside the camp perimeter but these little kids are out there hundreds of them they just brought them in to use for targets on case they bomb the power plant they're sure to get some collateral damage on these houses and they can talk about bombing ch- you know, churches dams dikes pagodas uh, nursery schools and uh, so anyway, that wasn't there very long and then we'll just a thing called school which was actually a school grounds that was pretty close to the power plant and um, that that's when George Coker escaped because he was when he escaped they were in that same place that uh um, we were in next to the power plant. And so and we were there for a little while, and then along came big bombing raids. Uh, October of 67, that's when it really started. The bombs started really picking up, and, and it went on and on and on. It was a very shortened Christmas thing at that time. And then it started up in earnest uh, right around... January 67 is when your dad got bagged. And it, it, it kept going like crazy for a while. And they'd stop it, you know, every six months or so and and say, you know, we'll, we'll be nice to them and not bomb them. Maybe they'll talk. And of course, they never did. Then, let's see. Power plant, school. There for about three or four, August to October 67. And they'd walk us around that place too. Um, right. So, so the Vietnamese would see us pulling cars. They had a little human ox cart. We had one we had to push and pull and act like we we're delivering something. And then uh, back went from there to Camp. Look at these. I hate these stupid names. Uh, camp Hope, Faith, and Unity. Unity was the last one, which was really wallow with a prison, big prison. Faith was in between. Camp Hope was Sante. And we went to Sante at Christmas time of 67 and was out there at Sante till the raid in 69. 
You just mentioned Sante Prison. I'd really like to talk to you a little bit more about that because, um, and you said you were there at Sante very up till very close to when the Sante raid occurred. So the Sante raid occurred in November of 1970. Unfortunately, there were no POWs there when, when the raid was executed. When, when had they moved you out of Sante? Bastille Day, July 14th of uh, 1969, 1970. So that, and, uh, that's July, right? July of 1970, they moved you out of Sante? Um, yes. And that was, I mean, they moved us to a camp halfway between, a new one they were fixing up, halfway between Sante and Hanoi. And that's where we were when the, for the raid. Do you have any idea why they moved you? So you had been in the Sante prison for some time. And then in July of that year, they moved you. Do, do you have any idea why they moved you? The speculation was there was a flood, imminent flood outside the camp. And we couldn't see it. And that, they never told us why. But um, I've heard that since. From a couple of different sources, from intelligence guys, and yeah. But anyway, but the day we, the, the day we moved, it's the only time they ever let all of us out at once, and they had us, we were in little clusters around the camp. But, you know, um, like the, the room we were in had those two cells, and they let us out together, and other ones. And I think something big was about to happen. And it turns out um, they moved us that night. A little drone went right over the camp and taking pictures of us. We are all out in the yard at the same time. And that was the, the, the actually the last drone they flew over the camp until the raid because they didn't want to tip it off, tip the raid off. And you know, it apparently worked because there was, obviously they didn't know about it. Every one of those helicopters would have been shot down. Yeah. So, so talk a little bit about that drone picture. So when you came back from Vietnam in 1973 and you went through the debrief process your debriefing officer showed you a picture of that of that drone that had flown over sante what did you see yourself in in that picture yeah i think it was i there's i mean it's, yeah, the photos weren't the same quality they are now when they take these things but i could the head looked like me a big head and i was pointing up at the drone and uh, I remember doing that when the drone came over because I hadn't seen one before. And um, I mean, it's a very small thing. It was not; it didn't make much noise compared to the the, the jet fighters we'd hear going over from time to time. Yeah. So you um, actually was, saw the drone, though. You you saw how high was it flying over the camp? Not very. It was fifteen hundred feet or so, two thousand feet. And um, um, you know, and I. Of course, aerial photographs—they they take in miles of of area, and so the camp was probably a small part of it. But uh, I, I distinctly remember one of the guys on the ground was pointing up at the uh, the drone. I remember doing that. Wow. Um, how many um, how many guards did they have in the Sante camp? Do you feel like Sante was a camp that was really guarded well? Um, or, or was it kind of remote and kind of light on the, on the guards there? 
but it was it, it wasn't remote. We were in a rural area. There was a lot of stuff going on outside, but um, I'm just you know for Americans to get out and and, and get through the camp um, without being detected was impossible. I mean, I'm not tall, but I'm about a full head taller than the average Vietnamese at that point, and uh, uh, it just was was not feasible. I'm mean, sure we could have got out of the camp, but you know I'm sure we would have got shot. We had had guards on four corners of that camp. Yeah. Guard box, the guard towers. Um, when the Sante raid took place, the night that happened, um, did you hear? Did you hear it going on? Did you, from where you were at the camp you were at? Could you hear bombs or or fighting taking place? What What did you hear? Well, it had been a little over two years since the bombing stopped in the north, and all of a sudden there's. Uh, air raid sirens and, and a lot of a lot of air traffic, and off the distance we hear helicopters. We we're only about five miles from Sante in this camp, and and uh, anyway, the raid was going on. We weren't sure what it was, but it was small arms fire, a lot of rounds. Um, recce airplanes are going overhead with these strobes flashing, uh, and it was a Navy was doing diversion east of Sante, so they, the, the, I suppose some of the Vietnamese would think. Um, we were bombing the eastern part rather than out west where Sante was. And so, but that was, we heard all those, all those airplanes for the first time in a couple of years. And um, we didn't know what it was. And the next morning, they came and got us very quick. And we, we got on buses, blindfolded and everything, and got driven in mass. And there's a, obviously a mass evacuation, something not very well planned, but put us on buses and brought us back into a wallow prison, the big prison. And, um, and there we were right up till they sent us up to the dog patch up to the Chinese border when the war really started up again. Did, did they, so after the Sante raid, when they, they obviously this scared the Vietnamese because they, they felt that a lot of these camps were at risk for being raided by the Americans and they didn't want us to recapture or get a hold of our POWs and bring them back and repatriate them. So they brought you all together in a central location. So they brought you to Wallow. Did, did they ever bring you to that uh, camp that was up North more by the Chinese oh, yeah. border or did you stay down no, South? No, this was a stopping off place. And after the Sante raid, we, we were in Hanoi at the, the Wallow prison for, uh, get there. November of 70 to May of 72. That's when the bombing really started up again. Okay. Up the, we went up, up to Dog Patch, which is the one up near the uh, Lang Son, near the Chinese border. So they did it's take fine. you to Dog Patch then? Oh, yeah. Okay. They never took my dad up there to that one. They left him down at Wallow. Um uh, I believe. So I would like to talk to you more uh, another time about dog patch. Cause I'd really like to find out more about that. But um, back on, back on Sante during the raid, there were no American POWs there, 
but who was who was there at the camp? Were any guards there? Was so they 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 engaged in some type of firefight with somebody? Do you know who it was yeah, that was they, there? They still had they still had guards around there. Uh, they didn't have any prisoners, but they had the you know, army army people in there. And um, the way the raid went down, if you remember, the helicopter crashed into the camp, and so which is the way that you're supposed to take something that's heavily fortified. And all the guards in the towers are looking out, and all of a sudden there, there's uh, 50 well-armed Americans behind them, inside. And they went around, opened every door, and uh, had to bust them all open, bolt cutters, got every single door open, no, no POWs anywhere, no prisoners. And, uh, and of course, we were only five miles away, but they didn't know that. Yeah. And then they, they got back in a helicopter. The only casualty... Uh, the only injury on the entire thing was because uh, they lost the helicopter that crashed into the camp. But the uh, the sergeant who was the, like the plane captain of that helicopter uh, broke his ankle when they, when they crashed in there. Something, a fire extinguisher broke loose and went down, hit his ankle, and broke his ankle. Right. But they, got, they just got another helicopter and went on back to Thailand. Well, I've done a lot of research about the Sante Raid. I'm actually in touch with a couple of the the Sante Raiders that are still alive, and I'm going to talk to them. I'm real interested to hear about that attempted rescue mission uh, from, from their perspective. Um, from your perspective, no, having been and spent so much time in the Sante prison, if the if you were still there and if the POWs were still there, would they have been able to rescue you? One of the things the Sante Raiders were concerned about was they, they were afraid that there was an execution order. In other words, if the camp was invaded by Americans, they were very concerned that the guards would immediately kill all the POWs. Do you think I they could have gotten to you in time before that? I don't know. I, I'm sure they're, they're less than 10 minutes. So I mean, that's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, uh, um, I don't know. Um, I don't know if they could have got to us, got the, all the rooms open, got us outside, got the other helicopters, got out. Of that uh, they, uh, the cavalry was coming from all around when the helicopters took off. Um, so you know, the helicopters are pretty easy targets um, when the, you're, the, the ground troops pretty close, and they're. they're you know, big, loud, and uh, so I don't know if they could have got us out or not. Uh, yeah, they obviously uh, they they tried done dry runs on it. The guys that went in the camp knew where everything was. They reconstructed the camp down at Eglin Field, down in uh, in Florida. That's what they practiced on. They blow it as balloons. They blew it up every night. Want to practice in the daytime? They deflate it. And uh, because the Russians did, they have night capability on their satellites, and, and they didn't want to have anything on the ground that looked like Sunday. Right. Um, so anyway, I, I don't know. Uh, I never heard before about the execute order. Um, if they didn't have one before, they probably had one afterward. Yeah. So from your perspective, so obviously the Sante raid was did not rescue any POWs because you, you weren't there, but it certainly changed your situation because yep. 
and what in your mind what what was that change was it a, was it a change for the better because you were at least around more americans after the raid well we didn't know what was going on but you know um a day or so later there they had they went back to wallo the big prison they'd had Viet, south vietnamese pow's in there and, and um they slipped a note to some of the guys that showed a bunch of uh, parachutes coming down and uh, with U.S. flags. And the, the, the South Vietnamese are giving everybody thumbs-ups. So we, we figured it must have been a raid, but we didn't know for sure until you know, actually a couple of years later. Before we wrap up this episode of the podcast, I'm going to let you listen to one more Paul Galanti flying story, which took place years later after the Vietnam War. Go Pablo. I, I get out one one lunch a week with a bunch of air guard pilots I used to fly with. Before the Navy found out about it, made me stop. <laughs> it says too da- too dangerous. I said, when I was 23 years old, you sent me 800, two 800 mile legs all by myself at night from Japan to Okinawa and from Okinawa to QB Point all by myself in this little airplane. But it's too dangerous for me to fly in an F-105 a 12,000 foot runway and uh, yeah besides you're not on orders well, I actually I am I'm required to get four hours a month does it make any difference if I get in an Air Force airplane or that's and, funny and I was flying, flying cross countries with them and my best flying story actually was with them is um, Bill Harris was a, the guard advisor he's Naval Academy class of 59 one of my firsties and uh, but he was the guard advisor, and so his son that he's going through a very nasty divorce. He had custody of his children, and his uh, uh, his son wanted to go to the Air Force Academy. He said, "You know anybody out there?" I said, "Well, we had seven POWs. It's like Annapolis was when you guys were little out there. If we had you know seven Navy guys at the Naval Academy, and and, uh, um, and so." I said, yeah, I know a whole bunch of them. And, and Ben Pollard had been one of my cellmates. was actually running the Air Force prep school. I said, let me give Ben a call. And so I went out and said, Ben, this is asking a lot, but this is, the, the, this, he's, he's, he's going to a Richmond public school, which is terrible. He's a bright kid. His dad was Naval Academy, uh, Air Force pilot career, and he's a guard advisor here. How about letting him in your prep school? He said, I promise you, you if you let him in, he'll graduate from the prep school. You know, graduate from the Air Force Academy, make you proud. And, you know, of course, it's supposed to be for all jocks. I, I don't remember if if uh, William uh, was a, a jock or not. But anyway, so he got in. And anyway, nine months later, his dad called me and said, hey, William finished number one in his class at the prep school. You want to go out to his graduation? I said, yes. So I strapped in the back of a 105 with uh, uh, Bill Harris. And we went out. It's... Actually, the best flying story I have is we arrived overhead Sea Springs with bags of fuel. And uh, you have to get it rid of it somehow. You don't want to dump it in the beautiful uh, uh, mountains up there. So uh, the Falcon Tower says, Fury, one, two, three, request a low pass. Said, Roger, uh, Fury cleared uh, 1,500, which is not low. Uh, 250 max. I don't think the F-105 will fly that slow. <laughs> Boom! And with the afterburner, we went downhill 0.97 Mach. We went right through the Air Force Academy. 
about 20 feet off the ground and pulled up and the tower's yelling at him. Fury, Fury, we hold you well below 1500. You're well below the ridge line. And Bill said, there must be something wrong with my altimeter. I better check it again. He rolled over the top and went down. This time he went through the prep school, which is offset about three miles. Same thing, right down the main drag, looking up the second stories on these boats. You know, about 0.95 Mach. And then um, we landed at Peterson, which is just outside of, uh, it's in Colorado Springs, but opposite side from the Air Force Academy. So we went over there and landed. And out comes this little non-rated, no-wings captain with a very irate, He's got this little DOD telephone stuff. Says, Colonel Story up at the Air Force Academy wants to talk to that pilot, the pilot of that guard thud right now. <laughs> and I didn't tell Bill Harris this, but I lived with Tom Story for five years in Hanoi. And I um, um, said, Bill, let me take this call. Story. Hey, Colonel Story, this is Second Lieutenant Hot Rocks Houlihan with the Virginia Air Guard. What <laughs> seems to be the problem? <laughs> Pause. Well, listen, Lieutenant, I used to be in a guard myself, and, uh, uh, and which, of course, I knew. And um, and uh, you're way too low and way too fast. And if you just call 15 minutes early, I could have had 4,000 cadets watching. I said, Colonel, you don't understand. I don't work for you active duty pukes. I work for the governor of Virginia. <laughs> it's dead silence. Dave Ford just happened to be in his office when this call came through. He thought Tom was going to have a heart attack. He said he stood up, his face turned beet red, knuckles were white on the phone. And he said, Lieutenant, I want your sorry ass in my office in 20 minutes or I'm sending the APs after you. I said, Well, send them to the club, Colonel. I'm going to happy heart. Waited <laughs> 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 about 20 seconds going, Hey, Thomas, Paul Glenny, how you doing? He just called me a minute ago. You son of a bitch. Oh, that's a great story. That's so, anyway, he and Dave, he and Dave Ford both came up to the club. We had a couple of beers, and by that time, Tom had cooled down. But he was ready to reach it. You know, if I'd waited about another thirty seconds to call him, I'm sure I would end up surrounded by sentry dogs, spread eagled on the out of the tarmac up there with the um, at the uh, Air Force Academy. Oh, that's funny. It's good to be Paul Galanti that day, huh? You you kept oh, yeah, everybody out of trouble. <laughs> it was, and, and nothing nothing official was ever said about it. All right. Well, Paul, Ooh, thank you again, okay. and have a safe okay. trip down to North Carolina. <laughs> okay, bye. You bet. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. I'll be talking to Paul again soon to discuss more historic events that took place in Hanoi during the 1960s and early 70s. You can contact us with questions or feedback by emailing us at theyankeeairpirate at gmail.com. That's theyankeeairpirate, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also visit and like our Facebook page, The Yankee Air Pirate. The page includes pictures and video of the people, places, and things we discuss in our podcast series. Also, please be sure to rate and leave a written review of our podcast on your podcast player. It's an easy way to help us spread these stories. We appreciate all our listeners. Semper Fi.